0: Hello everyone, Al from Point of Insanity Game Studio here, and like to welcome you back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studio's Geekery in General Podcast. We're going to continue our tour of the Outer Planes as presented in the first edition Dungeons and Dragons book, Manual of the Planes. And today, we're going to be taking a look at Limbo. Now, the name limbo comes from Latin, and it's based off of the word limbus, which means edge. Now, we've already talked a little bit about limbo when I did my episode on the Nine Hells. As you may recall, the poet Dante placed limbo as the first circle of hell. He described this as being the realm of the virtuous pagans and people who were not baptized, but whose deeds did not justify eternal punishment. As he believed, you could only be saved or go to heaven if you were baptized in the name of Jesus. So, therefore, if you were born before Jesus... Or if you never had the opportunity to be baptized, you were doomed to hell, no matter what your deeds were. And he didn't describe limbo as a place of punishment, but more a place of imperfect happiness. This is the best that a rational mind, without the hope of true salvation, could hope to obtain. Now, if we look past Dante and go into uh, church history, limbo is often pictured as having four sections. The first is the limbo of the patriarchs. This is described as the place where people would go who died in the friendship of God, but who were born before the coming of Jesus. So, early church fathers believed this is where some of the famous people from the Old Testament would have went. They remained here until an event called the harrowing of hell. After Jesus was crucified, he descended to hell to bring the righteous people in this limbo to heaven. And one of the reasons they came up with this possibly is because ancient Judaism really didn't have a clear conception of an afterlife. Now, there was a belief in a place called Sheol, and this was described as a place of darkness and silence. All people went here after death, regardless of their deeds in life. As one of my Old Testament professors explained, the belief was that the reward for being a good person was a long and prosperous life. Now, this is not a very satisfying belief of an afterlife, if you think about it, because under this belief system, it doesn't matter if you were the holiest, most righteous person in the world, or if you were the biggest turd in the toilet. The outcome was the same. After you died, you went to Sheol. Now, things did begin to change in later Judaism, though. During the Second Temple Period, which is from 500 BC to 70 AD, the Jewish belief in the afterlife did start to change. We see the introduction of something called the Bosom of Abraham. So this was the place where the righteous dead would go. And they may have drew some inspiration from the ancient Greek conception of the afterlife. Greek mythology describes a place called Hades, ruled over by the god of the same name. And Hades is divided into three sections. Elysium, the... Asphodel Meadows and Tartarus. Elysium was the realm of the heroes and righteous people. The Asphodel Meadows this is where people went who lived average lives. So depending on which version of Greek mythology you're going to consult I seem to recall something where it was more of a a very mundane, bleak existence. You know, again, you weren't given the same, uh, the same resting place that a great hero would have been given, but you really weren't punished, because you didn't really do anything that deserved that. And the third part, Tartarus, this is where the wicked went, and where they were... V- They were given various punishments. Now, I don't remember the names of some of the characters from Greek mythology, but uh, there was one I remember. He was forced to stand in a river, and above him was a tree branch with a piece of fruit on it. And whenever he got thirsty, if he tried to bend down and get a drink of water the level of the stream would get lower so he couldn't reach it. If he got hungry and tried to reach up and grab the fruit, the branch would go up so it was always just a little bit out of his reach. Another character I remember, uh, Sisyphus, his punishment was he thought he was wiser than Zeus and he could uh, outwit the gods. And his punishment was he was forced to roll a great boulder up a hill. And I think he may have been promised that if he ever did get the boulder to the top of the hill, he wouldn't be punished anymore. The problem is, once he was almost to the top, the boulder would roll back down and it would crush him. So he pretty much spends eternity in this futile cycle where he's always pushing that boulder up the to the top of this hill, but when he's always almost just there, it rolls back down and crushes him, and he has to start over again. Now, later Jewish writings describe a bit different version of the afterlife. There was still this concept of the righteous and the wicked going to the same place. But depending on the source, they were separated either by a chasm or by a river of fire. Now we get a little bit more information from a book called The Apocalypse of Zephaniah. This is one of those books where not all denominations of Judaism or Christianity accept the authenticity of this book. But in this book, the character Zephaniah describes being taken to the afterlife, where he has read two scrolls, one containing his sins, and the other containing his good deeds. This would determine his fate in the afterlife. So presumably, if it took longer to read the scroll that had your sins on it, you would be punished. If it took longer to read the scroll that had your virtuous deeds, then you would be rewarded. Now the next part of limbo is called the limbo of the infants. This is where souls went of unbaptized children who died in infancy. See, I mentioned before that, uh, in Dante's view, and I believe in some of the views of the, the early church founders, there was this belief that the only way you could go to heaven is if you were baptized. So, this did present a theological problem for the church. Now, if if baptism is the only way to go to heaven, what happens to infants who died before they could be baptized? or, again, children who died and maybe never had the opportunity. So, this would bring up another important question. Now, if you want to believe that God is good and merciful, why would he send infants who may have been born in original sin, but who are otherwise innocent of any crime, how could he force an innocent soul to an eternity of punishment. Now this is a debate that has been going on for centuries, so not really going to discuss it in great detail here. Some theologians have suggested that infants who die without baptism would exist in a state of natural happiness, since they would not be able to comprehend what true salvation is. So this takes the approach of being more, well, if you don't know about it, you can't really miss it, if that makes any sense. Now, others have suggested that they would still suffer, but mainly because they would realize that they've been denied entrance to paradise. Though other philosophers and theologians have taken a a bit more lukewarm approach, where saying that the soul of an unbaptized child was at the mercy of God. The next part of limbo, purgatory, this is traditionally presented as a place of fire. And this is a realm of temporary punishment as opposed to eternal punishment. And again, back when I talked a bit about the Uh, episode on the seven heavens, I talked a little bit about uh, purgatory because that does figure into Dante's divine comedy. Now, the reason that the church fathers pictured it as a realm of fire, it's because they had to be purified before their souls could enter heaven. And as you may recall, Dante depicted it a little bit differently more or less as a mountain with ten terraces. The first being where people who were excommunicated would go. Then the late repentance. Finally, the the next seven levels then would be dedicated to people who were purifying themselves of the seven deadly sins. And then finally at the top, was the earthly paradise, the Garden of Eden. And then finally, there is the Hell of the Damned. And this is where people would go who were wicked enough that their deeds would require some form of punishment or retribution in the afterlife. And again, we've already explained uh, or talked uh, quite a bit about that a few episodes ago when I did my episode on the Nine Hells. So now let's take a look at how Limbo is pictured in Dungeons and Dragons. Here is where the the realms are really only similar in name only. Because, well, Limbo in D&D isn't really seen as a place of punishment or a place where souls would go if they were, again, not wicked enough to deserve punishment, but they didn't really meet the requirements to go to heaven. So again, kind of that intermediate state. However, it still does fill a a niche or, well, what's the best way to say this, a function or a motif that we do see in a lot of ancient mythologies. Now, Limbo in Dungeons and Dragons is the realm of pure chaos. The alignment of this plane is chaotic neutral. And it is described as being a soup uh, made up of characteristics of all four of the classical elements. Air, fire, water, and earth. And many ancient cultures did picture the world as arising from some sort of primordial chaos. And if you want to go scientific, you could even say this idea of the primordial ooze or primordial soup, it does... It actually is somewhat in agreement with scientific theories that uh, life as we know it arose from you know these simple organisms that existed in this again this primordial soup that may have once been on the earth. Now, the manual of the planes does not state how many layers limbo has, so it might be like the Abyss where it's assumed to have either an infinite number of layers or a very large number of layers. Since it is the Plane of Chaos, I could also see it as having not a set number of layers because possibly the different layers of this plane are constantly being absorbed into one another, and layers can merge, or get destroyed, and then reformed. Now, even though limbo is described as being made up of this primordial ooze, or chaotic soup, it does respond to the thoughts of intelligent creatures, a sentient being can force the environment to stabilize, though for anything less than the power of a god, this requires total concentration on the part of the individual. So this could make adventuring in limbo very challenging because you might have to have you know one person in the party concentrate on keeping a you know a, a stable safe zone for the party while everyone else does the fighting and does what needs to be done and they may need to you know switch off as the as the need dictates because limbo is pictured as being far from uninhabited the uh, ma- two major races that are said to live here uh first there are the uh sladdy I think that's how it's pronounced, let me just uh, double check here. Uh, yes, the slatty which are described as frog-like creatures, and then the other inhabitants, but not natives, are the gitzari. And the, as I recall, the uh, slatty they actually are able to move quite comfortably through this primordial soup, and are not affected by it at all, and I believe the Githzeri also had some sort of way that they they coped with it. Now, uh, Manual of the Plains does list four deities that are found here. Two of them I can kind of see making sense. The other two, not so much. First, it mentions this as being the plane where Indra lives, Indra is the Hindu god of storms, rain, and rivers. He also slayed the demon Vritra, who was believed to stand in the way of human prosperity. He was described as being a friend to mankind and is described as follows in a verse from the Rig Veda, which is one of the ancient uh, Hindu holy books. Let me tell you the manly deeds of Indra, which he first accomplished bolt weaponed. He slew the serpent, opened up waters, cleft in twain the belly of mountains. He slew the serpent on the mountain with heavenly bolt made by Tivstar. Like lowing cattle downward sped the waters, then flowed to the ocean well, this doesn't really sound like a deity that would be very appropriate for uh, the plane of Limbo. Though when they wrote Manual of the Plains, they may have been drawing on later um, interpretations or uh, depictions of Indra. Later Hindu texts reduce Indra's importance and describe him as a hedonistic god. So this is the version of Indra that we see pictured in the Manual of the Plains. Now this later version of Indra was said to be somewhat fickle, and he could send rain and storm, usually with the intent to hurt instead of help mankind. In one story from this period, Indra threatens to flood mankind out with the rain. However, Krishna rescues humanity by holding up a mountain with his fingertip to provide shelter from the rain. So I can see this as fitting since he is considered a storm god, because if we think back to ancient times, to people long ago, a storm could very well be seen as the epitome of chaos. Before we had weather radar and ways to try to predict the weather, a storm could just seem to come out of nowhere. And, you know, you have these fast winds and driving rains and thunder and lightning. So it would seem that all the elements of the universe were all coming together and clashing and fighting with each other and everyone else just kind of... You know, humans were just kind of in the way and subject to the, the mercy and whims of this storm. So I could see in that regard this late you know this uh later version of Indra fitting. Now I'm not exactly sure what caused Indra to take this turn from being this more benevolent, friendly deity in the Rig Vedas to being pictured as this more uh, petty, fickle deity in... Okay, I'm wanting to say the text was the Upanishads. I might be wrong on that, though. It is possible there just may have been changes in Indian culture that may have caused the people to view that god differently. I mean, a good example of how these changes might occur... Many episodes ago, my first historical gaming episode, to be precise, I talked a little bit about how to run a Dungeons and Dragons-themed campaign in ancient Egypt. And in that episode, I talked about the god Set, or Seth. And he in earlier times in Egypt he was seen as a warrior protector. He guarded the sun from a giant serpent. But later, he became the god of foreigners and became seen as this dark deity of evil and disruption. And the theory is that uh, Seth may have been uh, venerated by some of the uh, hostile uh, tribes or people that lived in the southern part of Egypt. And, while when these invaders came sweeping into um, the northern part of Egypt, that's what may have caused them to start to associate Set as being a god of death and destruction. Next we have Agni, the Hindu god of fire. I can kind of see him working here. He does have a triple aspect. He represents fire on earth, lightning in the atmosphere, and the sun in the sky. He's very important in Hinduism because many of their rituals involve fire, whether it is cremating someone uh, after they die or lighting a fire to uh, celebrate the birth of a child. Are also in Hindu uh, wedding ceremonies, the uh, bride and the groom will uh, walk in a circle around a fire seven times. He also has a dualistic nature, which I guess I can see that's why he could fit here rather well, because he was seen as both, well, as a fire god, he was seen as both a purifier and a destroyer. Now, Manuel of the Plains also places a Japanese deity here named Susanoo, And I'm going to have to give the mispronunciation disclaimer. I'm probably going to be horribly mispronouncing uh, some of these uh, words here. Now, Susanoo is the Shinto god of the seas and storm. And I'm not really sure if he's an appropriate fit for this particular plane. Now, one possible reason is since he is a god associated with storms, the authors of the book may have, again, taken that storm god aspect and figured that it worked perfectly with the motif of this, you know, this chaos realm. Also, Uh, some ancient cultures did view the sea as representing chaos. Though, at least from my studies, this motif seems to be more common in Middle East religions as opposed to Asian religions. Now, Susano was the son of the god Izangi, and he was formed when that god washed his nose. He was driven out of the court of his sister, Amaterasu, and banished from heaven because of his behavior. It was said that he possessed a weapon called Totsuka no Suguri, which means Sword of the Length of Ten Fists. He used this weapon to slay an eight-headed dragon named Yamada no Orochi. After he defeated that dragon, he found a sword hidden in the dragon's tail called Amano Murakomo no Tuguri, which means Sword of the Gathering Clouds of Heaven. Susano gave the sword to his sister as a gift. The name of the weapon was later changed to Kusanagi no Suguri, which means grass-cutting sword. Now, I don't know about you, but personally, I think uh, Sword of the Gathering Clouds of Heaven sounds a little cooler than, uh, the, than grass-cutting sword, and I think the it got its name from another myth, which involved cutting a uh, brush also of interest is uh this sword the grass cutting sword may actually exist because in japan there are three items the three imperial regalia of japan which consists of a mirror a jewel and this sword now their debate their existence is somewhat debated because Only the Emperor and certain priests are allowed to actually view the items directly. And in the rare occasions where they are taken out in public, they're uh, either wrapped in something or they're in a box, so uh, not everyone can see the sword or the mirror or the jewel. So I just thought that was kind of interesting that this is a mythological weapon that might actually have a a real weapon named after it. Now, as I said, I don't think he really sounds like a deity that is very much in place in limbo. Well, I guess in in Legends, his behavior may have been seen as somewhat crude, um, and he does have that storm god and sea god aspect going for him. He does defeat a dragon, which in Japanese mythology and folklore... Dragons are often associated with water, so again, not uh, Japanese religion, mythology, and folklore isn't really my forte. But if dragons are seen as these creatures of chaos, and with Susano defeating one, you could almost see him as a uh, taking the role of a, uh, you know, the god that brings order by defeating chaos. So, take that for what it's worth. It's just my personal interpretation. Finally, there's another deity here from Chinese mythology called Wan Ti. And the book Deities and Demigods pictures him as a god of war, wearing red armor, and armed with a sword and a halberd. Now, I couldn't really find much when I was just looking up the name it's possible that it may have been a westernized version of Huang Di, which means the Yellow Emperor. And from what I could tell, it seems very much out of place. Uh, the Yellow Emperor is a legendary first emperor of China. He's credited with many inventions as well as being the innovator of agriculture and Chinese civilization so in that regards I think it sounds that he would be more appropriate or more at home on the plane of Nirvana as opposed to Limbo just my opinion though well that's about all I have to say about Limbo for now I hope you enjoyed the episode uh, found it to be informative and hopefully a little entertaining Uh, Again, just from what I've read about Limbo and Manual of the Planes, seems like it would be a very challenging realm to adventure in, though I personally can't really think of many adventure hooks for the plane, other than maybe trying to find some lost artifact in there, and uh, trying to find it in this primordial soup could be a worthy challenge indeed. Well, with that said, I'd like to thank you for tuning in, and have a good evening or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio.